You know you've got to sing along. Don't you know? This is the Cabinets HR Podcast, hosted by Jason Cabinets. Join Jason as he talks to small business owners, founders, and people in tech startups in HR. If you fall into one of these categories or are just curious about them, then this is the podcast for you. You will gain great insights from these great conversations. The Cabinets HR Podcast is brought to you by Cabinets HR. At Cabinets HR, we deliver HR to companies with 49 or fewer people by automating the HR process. We believe that you don't need a full-time HR person to receive full-time HR expertise. Hello, and welcome to the Cabinets HR Podcast. I'm your host, Jason Cabinets. Our guest today is John Richards. John, are you ready to be great today? Sure, I am, very much. Johnny Richards is an entrepreneur, venture investor, mentor, and educator. His endeavors involve founding, operating, managing, selling, and investing in enterprises. Though he's a journalist, he mentors entrepreneurs frequently in software, internet, mobile, blockchain, and consumer products. He founded a startup, startup ignition and entrepreneur bootcamp. He served as Google's, Google Fiber's head of operations as, as a launch in Provo, Utah. He spent over a decade teaching entrepreneurship at Brigham Young University in Provo, Utah, where he helped it achieve a number two ranking and bring the Rollins Center for Entrepreneurship and Technology to global prominence. He is listed as one of the top 25 entrepreneurial educators in the United States. He was managing partner of Utah Angels, a venture, venture investing group. He co-founded Boom Startup, a leading tech city accelerator. He has invested in hundreds of ventures and mentored thousands. Early in his career, he was president of a Yellow Pages publishing company and later created the first ever online Yellow Pages that led to an initial public offering and a multi-billion dollar valuation as part of InfoSpace Inc. John is also a frequent speaker at conferences and other events. He and his family reside in Utah. John, you're doing a lot of great stuff to the entrepreneurial community. Thank you very much for that. Thanks. So, John, talk about Startup Edition real fast. How did they get started and why are you, why are you doing that? Well, Startup Ignition is a boot camp based on kind of the, sh- the modern day short term intensive boot camp model. Uh, it started about a decade ago with dev boot camps where uh, it turned out that a 12 week course in how to become a software engineer, a software coder, and you could outperform often four year degrees in, in computer science in terms of actually being able to produce product for the industry. So uh, when I completed my time uh, at Google, which actually had forced me to leave the university environment, I came back and instead of going back to university, looked at the bootcamp model and it turned out that entrepreneurship is also a learned skill behavior. And so it was really ripe for a bootcamp. And there were only about five trying to do something similar across the country, but mostly focus on an entrepreneurial mindset. And Startup Ignition instead is a really practical hands-on been there, done it. Here's the steps you need to take in order to launch a company uh, type of boot camp, and found out there was a market for it. And so did that about three, four years ago and hundreds and hundreds have been through the program now. Are there certain type of startups you take on? Is it like business, business, business to consumer, any certain niche or all as long as it's tech startup? Any, any time, any type of start doesn't have to be tech even, but about 50% tend to be software based and about 30%, you know, tangible, physical consumer product base and about 15, 20% across a smattering of other types of businesses. So it's very dominated by today's, you know, more scalable venture uh, niches like, software-driven companies and consumer products. 
John, do, do they need a certain amount of traction to come to you to apply? No, no. It's uh, from idea stage all the way to companies that have had a, almost up to a million dollars in revenue that were a little stagnated have uh, come in to kind of make sure they're practicing good lean startup practices so they can prepare themselves for scaling. The companies that, that, that finished the, the, the course, what do they get out of it? Well, it's not an accredited program. There's not a certificate, but what, what happens is they get uh, a lot of incredible knowledge, mentoring, and connections to network that really help them get things done. So it's more about achievement. So the absolute uh, of our first set of curriculum, the absolute pinnacle is to have nailed a business model. So the, the program starts off with three intensive days of in-class training and then three months of unlimited mentoring. And within three to five months, so maybe a little bit more than uh, the the 12-week time frame, uh, the goal is to have nailed a business model. And in today's world, when we say nailed a business model, that means you've acted absolutely in a scientific way have found product market fit. It's not a whimsical guessing game. It's actually mathematically proven that you found a product market fit. And that's a special thing because once you've done that, as long as you set up the infrastructure right, you can have a really fine scalable business. Can a company outside of Utah apply to come and attend? We've had people from outside the country come. It surprised me the first time when we had uh, international participants, but we have people from different states around the country and even international folks come into Utah for the three-day kickoff, and then we use virtual techniques in order to do the mentoring. Yes, and it, it just and you have a pretty good mentoring team too there, don't you? I, I saw it on, on the on your LinkedIn page. You see you and some other people, some really high visibility people. Yes, yeah, some really uh, sophisticated educators, and then uh, folks that have literally built companies and exited uh, at very high valuations. Also, have had a lot of failure. So you can't just be a one hit wonder and, and teach other entrepreneurs. You have to have had kind of a rounded experience of both success and failure. So, John, speaking of, of mentoring people, is there a way you can tell that someone does not want to be mentored? Of course, they'll say, hey, I don't, they don't want to be mentored and they don't want to take the block. But you can tell by their actions or words that, that, that you're kind of wasting your time trying to mentor this person. Yeah, we, we have an admissions process. So they take an entrepreneurial quotient test, which is an assessment of their teachability and also their tolerance for risk and other aspects that are important to entrepreneurship. And then they do an, an interview with me personally, the, each person that's applying so that I can see if they're a good fit. There's definitely some people that should not be entrepreneurs and there's definitely some people that are not teachable. And those are the two things we're looking for because we don't want to waste their time or our time. And what's your average class size, the cohort? We cap it at 20 each. Every three months, we hold a new uh, class of 20 entrepreneurs. So, John, next, um, you know, you're, there's, you know, in Star they say, you know, keep on grinding, keep on hustling, don't give up, keep on going, you know, sex around the corner. But once that I found to say, you know what, maybe this isn't for me. Maybe the time's not right. Maybe this, this idea isn't right. When should a founder, you know, go that route? Well, that's a that's a really good question. So let me just uh, recommend to your readers too. The number one Bible for lean startup, which is again about a decade old or a little bit more than that now, that swept the globe, is the concept that uh, a large corporation and an entrepreneurial organization are very different. And so there's actually. Uh, different things we need to do in a startup than we do in just a miniaturized version of a large corporation. And one of those is practicing lean startup when we launch new ideas and new products and new services. And uh, before we launch, 
we actually uh, test our hypothesis for a business model around that idea. And that testing of a hypothesis involves uh, experiments that can be interviewing with customers, your target customer that you're hypothesizing. It can be doing rapid assumption tests of products or even building a minimum viable product. But one of the most important things is the concept of interviewing the target customers. And if you're interviewing target customers and you're finding out that you have very, very low potential for product market fit, it's not worth it to uh, hit your head against the wall. And so you either pivot greatly or abandon that idea and go to a new one. And so what's, what's really important uh, and why there's so much angst out in the entrepreneurial world is that actually people are launching scalable activity before they have anything ready to scale. And that's when you have all these problems. People should throw in the towel of squandering time and money if they haven't validated business model. That's for sure. And they should go back and try to validate the business model, which again is synonymous with finding product market fit. If you found product market fit and it's not working, uh, then there's something else wrong. And that, and then, comes down to an execution issue. John, you got a good point. I, th- I think too many entrepreneurs, like they'll say, I, I validated my idea. Well, who do you talk to? Oh, my, my mom, my dad, my 10 best friends, you know, drinking buddies. Like, no, talk to people that have no idea what you're talking about, right? Yeah. So I, I was saying one of the, the books in the industry that teaches this lean startup is called The Startup Owner's Manual by Steve Blank and Bob Dorf, an excellent book. There's another one, one of the, uh, and I can't remember the author's name right now, but it's called The Mom Test. And the last five years is probably one of the two most important entrepreneurship books published. And it's called The Mom Test. And it is absolutely about that very problem that entrepreneurs, uh, are looking constantly for confirmation bias and they don't go ask arm's length target customers. They're asking their circle of friends and the people that they know how good their idea is. From your experience, talk about some characteristics of, of successful founders and then characteristics of unsuccessful founders. Successful founders do a lot of things. Uh, and that is, again, they, they focus on uh, making sure that they have devised a solution to uh, a problem that their target customers have so that they can actually use the product or service. They also, after finding this business models I've talked about, one of the most important things they do next, and this is relevant, I think, to you, and that is they build teams. And uh, building a team is a very important process of entrepreneurship. Uh, Once you, uh, the founders of a venture, validate that they've got something real, that they found product market fit, now they have to start building a team of non-founders to carry out and execute the business model. This is one of the most important things that entrepreneurs fail at. For instance, you'll find an entrepreneur constantly complaining that they hire salespeople and they can't sell. Most of the time, it's because the founder did not do a good job of devising a system where a non-founder can sell. Because the founder goes out and says, oh, I can sell. Let me go show you. And the founder goes out and he lands a couple of customers and uh, comes back and tells the lazy, quote unquote, salesman uh, that uh, he, he's not doing it right, not worth anything. And the reality is the founder needs to find a system that the non-founder can come in and repeat and sell at. That's the duty of a founder. Same thing with all the processes, customer service, for instance, or activation and onboarding. The team that activates and onboards customers is very important to, to a company. What's their first experience with your product? And 
the founder has to devise the system to teach to a non-founder how to do these things. This is when you're transitioning from a startup to a real company, building a team of non-founders that can actually execute the systems and infrastructure of a company is a critical component of entrepreneurship. And that's where we see a lot of failure, to be honest with you. That's when you see stagnation and great ideas not take off. And, and I think as a investor, you want to invest in a, if you have two choices, one with a co two co-founders with no team, great idea, a little bit of traction, or you want to invest in the co- co-founders with a team of six people who are working for free and equity, so to speak, and, you know, really grinding. You think, I would think you want to invest in one of the team, right? Yeah. You, you want a rounded team that, you know, is, <laughs> that is going to be able to execute. You can't, first of all, you know, one of the cardinal rules of startup entrepreneurship is no lone wolf entrepreneurs for, for scalable ventures. So you can't just do it as a single founder. You need actually two or three founders. And then the next question is, okay, the next layer of key people that you bring into the company are going to be employees. They're going to be non-founders and you want to see that team built. It's a very, very challenging uh, thing in today's robust economy. I'm, I'm here in the state of Utah. Utah is, I think, got the number one economy of all 50 states. We're booming here. And uh, the talent wars are real here. Finding the talent to fulfill, uh, to fill these positions at companies is a real challenge. Matter of fact, what's separating right now uh, the entrepreneurs that take off and the ones that don't take off is their ability to actually attract and train and put in place and good employees. So what do your advice to be on people trying to build a team? Like, like I'll tell people the time I have my own startup, I can tell, you know, employee number one, Hey, employee number one, I'm going to give you 5% acre in the company. But realistically, that's the same as me telling you, Hey, see the pot of gold in the rainbow. I'm going to give it to you. Right. It's probably not going to happen. So I think it has to be a balance between like being like the visionary, you know, we're going to take over the world versus, hey, this is probably going to fail. So what advice do you have on people for doing that? Well, I have to tell a lot of entrepreneurs, they have to remember that some employees have tried the startup route before and had a really bad uh, experience. And so they're going to be really gun shy. And so those are going to be the people that are going to want to see more salary than equity. So one of the currencies that a startup entrepreneur has in order to attract talent is the currency of uh, stock options or equity uh, stock option grants. And they have to be used very wisely and with the right person. Um, If you're trying to attract somebody that's going to require a market rate salary, you're going to have to go out and raise capital to, in order for you to be able to afford to pay market rate salaries to early employees. But if you can somehow bring the salaries down by offering equity options, which can be a very win-win situation for everyone, for the right person, the right situation, then you have to master how to do that. But obviously, you can only do large equity grants at the very beginning with a handful of key people at the beginning because you can't give away all of the equity in the company to all the employees. So there's a transition you're going to go from playing with those two levers, how much salary, how much equity, to eventually just moving to market rate salaries for most people. And that that also is a real skill set that an entrepreneur needs to have in today's environment. And that, again, is one of the failure, failure points for entrepreneurs. So they, they uh, have to be very good at negotiating with 
potential employees in in these packages for compensation. If they don't maneuver that minefield well, they're going to step on a landmine. And a landmine in that realm would be, you know, they invest six months in a person and the person doesn't stay. And then all of that knowledge leaves the company or they know they found the perfect software engineer, the perfect first account executive, uh, whatever it may be. And they can't land them because they've haven't planned well how they're going to use the combination of salary and equity to attract the team. Does that make sense? It makes a lot of sense. I mean, because a pie is hundred percent regardless, right? It doesn't get any bigger. It's a hundred percent is hundred percent. And also you got to figure, you know, if you get funding, they're going to want, you know, if you use like 20, 25, maybe as high as 30% equity in company from the VC side too, right? Right, exactly. Another another really interesting point. One of the things that entrepreneurs and and actually Steve Blank, he's the grandfather of Lean Startup, the author of that book I told you about. Um, he has a very famous story that he tells, and I'll just kind of I've seen it so many times in my own career. As entrepreneurs, we're often saying, "Oh, wow! If I just landed that person from IBM or Hewlett Packard or Oracle." or whatever large company, they're going to make my startup just boom. And it, it's really interesting. Uh, large corporate executives and middle managers often have a very hard time transitioning to the startup environment. And so all these things have a time and season. And you're going to notice a lot of times that when you recruit that big company person to your eight-person startup, they come in and cause more havoc and wreak more problems uh, because they're just not used to this environment. They're looking for support staff and a much larger marketing budget, whatever it may be that a startup doesn't have and the startup's just not ready for them yet. And so it's really important that startup founders and those executives know when the right time is for that kind of uh, ability to bring in those type of people into a growing venture. Too early and you'll have some problems. John, when would you recommend a founder reach out to? I suppose the founders out there, they did the research and they, there's like three or four investors they want to reach out to to potentially invest. When, you, when would you advise them to reach out to those investors? The optimal time, because you can reach out obviously any time, sometimes even out of dis, uh, desperation more than inspiration, but uh, the optimal time to reach out to an investor, uh, a professional venture investor, somebody that invests in, in growing up and coming ventures is when you can put together six months of track record of revenue, customer acquisition or user acquisition, where for six months in a row, the month over month growth is 10% or greater. So for instance, whether that be revenue, customer count, or user count, you can show six months in a row that each month was 10% higher than the previous month. When you show that, the venture investor does not have to do as much due diligence and knows that you figured a lot of things out that they don't need to do a massive amount of due diligence because you're proving it by those traction numbers. The other caveat to that is they're also going to be looking at churn numbers because you can have high growth numbers with high churn in the early stages and that the high growth can mask the churn problem. But eventually, if your churn is too high, all of those uh, numbers, revenue, customer counts, user counts, will eventually plateau instead of hockey stick. So you've got to be careful with churn as well. But if I were a startup company and I was in my fourth month of consecutive 10% month over month growth in any one of those numbers, and I knew my fifth and sixth month were going to be that way, I would start engaging with investors and showing them those numbers. And you'll find that the conversation will be very positive when otherwise it's much more of a struggle. 
It's like nowadays, most investors, it's pretty easy to find out what they invest in, right? Like you, you'll go to an investor's page and it'll say, I invest only in healthcare, only invest in a round. So it's pretty much easy for founders and others to go to different venture capital firms and, and, and pinpoint that, right? Well, there's a lot of thematic investors like that. There's no doubt, but there's also generalists. The real big change is mostly between full large venture firms and small seed funds. In the last decade since the great crash in 2008, one of the biggest changes, and anyone not in the game uh, recently should be aware of this, that uh, the real power brokers in the venture world now are actually the seed funds. They're about 40 to $60 million seed funds. When in the past, we used to see 200 million plus venture funds. The 40 to $60 million seed funds in each of the metro markets, they actually are the ones that bless a deal to be uh, anointed or not. And so, because they come in and give the first few hundred thousand dollars up to a million dollars, maybe max 1.5 million, which is too small of money for a big full venture fund to be messing around with because they, it's just as much work for a $500 million venture fund to deploy 10 million as it is 1 million. So they don't want to mess around with 500,000 or a million. So these venture funds though, they actually come in and do the 300, $500,000 investments and send the venture along their way. So that's, that's the, that's the real big change. Not the thematic changes of investors. That's kind of easy to figure out and find. It's really understanding that uh, the seed funds are who you really have to be looking out for as an entrepreneur in today's world. General, General, how much time should a founder uh, allocate for, for fundraising? Well, that's a very good question. And you ask any CEO who just completed a fundraising, they look back the last, you know, four months to 12 months and they'll say, that was like having a second job. It took 90% of my time to raise that capital. And this is why you also don't want to raise capital too early because you'll spend all your time raising capital, not getting any traction. So the ideal time is when you've got a team, you've been a good uh, manager of bringing on team and you can delegate to these team members to carry on important functions in the company while you go chase the investors. If you are trying to be everything operational in your company and having to raise the capital, you're going to stall because it's going to be a very hard endeavor to carry on both of those tasks. That's, that's the reality. It's if you ask any CEO who just recently closed, let's say in the month of November, how was the previous six months for you? They'll go, it was a nightmare. I, I spent 90% of my time raising money and didn't get to do what I got. I started this business to make widgets. I started this business to be the greatest widget maker, but I'm actually a, just a money raiser. And it's just an interesting thing. John, can you talk about your time as an advisory board member at South by Southwest? Um, yeah. So uh, South by Southwest was expanding to Las Vegas and they did for about four years, a version of South by Southwest in Las Vegas called V2V. And uh, I really liked it because it was closer to me where I'm at, but I've been to South by Southwest and spoken there several times and, and put on some highly rated presentations. But during that period when they were expanding to uh, Vegas, I served on the advisory board that helped get that going, especially their entrepreneurship track and their entrepreneurship competition that they had in at the Vegas venue. And it was really, I really liked it and thought it was good, but they didn't continue it after about four years and just went back to centralizing everything in Austin. But um, it was held at the Cosmopolitan Hotel, uh, I believe most of the time. And uh, I, I thought for what it was, it was, it was good. 
John, I understand you have, a, you have a gift for our listeners. Oh, yes. So Startup Ignition is a in-person live boot camp that's held in Lehigh, Utah. Lehigh is the city in between Salt Lake City and Provo. It's a booming, booming tech center now. Some of the, we just had an $8 billion exit for a company. Uh, some of the biggest, most important tech companies in the country now are, are in, in Lehigh. And so we hold a boot camp there about every three months. The tuition's $1,999 or $2,000. And for any listener today that mentions that they saw this podcast, uh, if they want to attend and come in and stay in a nice uh, low-cost hotel for three days and uh, be a part of this three-day boot camp, but we'll give a $500 discount. So $500 down to $1,500. So, John, I think in Utah it's called Silicon Slopes is what they call it. Yeah, Silicon Slopes is the name that we've adopted, just like, you know, up in Oregon, they call themselves Silicon Forest. In New York is Silicon Alley. And so we're the uh, Silicon Slopes because when you arrive at the Salt Lake Airport, within 20 minutes, there's something like 13 major ski resorts. So. John, can you share your social media links so people are going to reach out to you? Sure. Um, I'm on LinkedIn. Very easy to find just uh, John Richards uh, in Utah. Super easy on LinkedIn. At Twitter, I'm uh, John Richards uh, underscore UT for Utah. And then, uh, and that's J-O-H-N, the John. And uh, that's the best way to reach me. And I also invite you to uh, email. I'm fine giving out my email, jrichards at startupignition.com. And I'll take any question from any entrepreneur uh, uh, that, that they want to ask. And I enjoy doing that. And for a listener who have the links to his social media and his resources at our blog and our blog is at www.kevinchrblog.com. John, we're coming to the end of our talk. Can you give our listeners any advice or wisdom, anything you want to talk about? In today's market, one of the most important things that you can do for yourself is to make sure that you are taking the time to understand what you're getting into as you think about launching a company or think about taking an idea to market. And just like you need to be very careful when you're hiring people and you're being very careful, the old saying, on hiring is, uh, you know, an ounce of prevention is worth a pound of cure. So, you know, be slow to hire, quick to fire. Same thing with your customers. The message today is the same thing carries on. You need to make sure you understand your customers very well before you press on the accelerator and put too much gas in the tank. Thank you, John. Thank you, John, for your time today. I really appreciate it. Thank you. It was a pleasure. And to our listeners, thank you for your time as well. And remember to be great every day. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Cabinets HR Podcast. Be sure to connect with us on LinkedIn, Facebook, Twitter, Snapchat, Instagram, Twitch, YouTube, and TikTok at Cabinets HR. Also check out our weekly live streams at the Cabinets HR Facebook, Twitch, YouTube, and Periscope, where we focus each week on an HR topic important for small business. These are every Wednesday at 10 a.m. Pacific Standard Time and last around three minutes. To join our weekly HR email newsletter list, send us an email to jasoncabinets at cabinetshr.com. Thank you, and remember to be great every day.